The Trinity and Christology in the Transfiguration. When one reads the gospel accounts of the Transfiguration, one can't help but conclude that it's one of the most striking and profound mysteries of Christ's earthly life. And indeed, it seems as if the three apostolic witnesses have been brought up a high mountain in order to glimpse something that is no longer earthly, but rather of heaven. Christ radiates with splendor. A bright cloud overshadows them, and they hear the Father's voice bearing witness to his only begotten Son. In patristic and medieval theology, one can typically observe two axes of theological reflection on the theophany of the transfiguration. The first axis is Trinitarian. It's a theophany of the divine persons, the Father's voice, the beloved Son. And in some authors, though not all, interestingly, the luminous cloud signifies the Holy Spirit. The second axis is Christological. It's a theophany of Christ, who is true God and true man, a manifestation of the divine Son present in human form as he radiates a divinized glory, or for some, even the very eternal light of the divine nature. Some patristic and medieval authors interpret the transfiguration principally along one axis or the other, or emphasize one and acknowledge the other only in passing. In Aquinas' theological reading of the Transfiguration, we find both of these dimensions or axes. And in fact, I would contend that St. Thomas offers a distinctive and powerful account of this mystery that is at once both Christological and Trinitarian. The luminous mystery of the Trinity is manifested through Christ, the eternal, sent by, the eternal Son sent by the Father as man, in the power of the Spirit. As man who is true God incarnate, Christ leads us up into the heart of the Trinitarian mystery. And through all that he does and suffers, reveals it and gives us a share in it. As we shall see, Aquinas not only draws on the church fathers, both Greek and Latin, but is perhaps best described, I think, as offering a rich and original synthesis of them a synthesis that is both highly traditional and at the same time showcases Aquinas' genius for integrating diverse traditions into an overarching unity of theological vision. So let's begin with the Trinitarian axis. For St. Thomas, the transfiguration is a theophany or a revelation of the three divine persons of the Trinity. This view is indeed found in some fathers but surprisingly to me at least, as I did this research, it's missing in many. A good number do not mention the Holy Spirit at all in connection with the Transfiguration, perhaps because they are concerned principally with the identity of Christ and the relation of Christ and the Father. So as far as I've been able to discover, of course I'm not an expert in this field, there is mention of the Holy Spirit at the Transfiguration neither in Basel, nor Gregory of Nazianzus, nor Gregory of Nyssa, nor John Chrysostom, nor Cyril of Alexandria, nor even Leo the Great. Now, Origen thinks one might identify the cloud with the Holy Spirit, but says that it might also signify the Father or the Son. 
Ambrose and Jerome, in contrast, do expressly identify all three persons present at Mount Tabor. For Aquinas, however, the most important source may well be John Damascene, who, in a sermon that Aquinas quotes when he treats of the transfiguration, Damascene sees the Holy Spirit in the luminous cloud and draws an express parallel to the Spirit's appearance in the form of a dove at Christ's baptism. So this, I think, is very important for for Aquinas. Even more importantly for St. Thomas, however, the transfiguration is seen most clearly as a Trinitarian theophany insofar as he places it under the rubric of the divine missions. This is extremely significant because the divine missions, as many of you know, play an architectonic role in Aquinas' theology. By means of the divine missions, the Trinitarian mystery of God in himself is not only revealed in the dispensation of salvation, but is active in drawing creation back into the Trinity as the eternal processions are made present and, as it were, extended into time. Of course, the divine missions are a central theme in Augustine's De Trinitate. It's a theme reproduced, then, in Peter Lombard's sentences, and therefore commonly treated in the West. So one might think, therefore, that it's a particularly Latin and Western mode of Trinitarian reflection. Yet, in fact, it has an important pedigree also among the Greek fathers. Here, unfortunately, I only have time to state the conclusions of my research. The divine missions, it seems, became an important subject in the Arian crisis because some argued that if the son was sent by the father, and that's what we're talking about, about missions, missio is Latin for to send or ascending, some argued that if the son was sent by the father, he must be less than the father. And in response, St. Athanasius developed a nascent theory of divine missions of both Son and the Holy Spirit, though, to my knowledge at least, he doesn't use the label divine missions as Augustine does so prominently. And it's likewise been documented by some other uh, scholars that Augustine was familiar with at least a portion of the key texts of Athanasius on this point, leading us to wonder whether Augustine's reflections on the divine missions in the De Trinitate actually are transmitting to the Latin West and then to to Aquinas a pro-Nicene Athanasian influence. And of course, the divine missions feature also in John Damascene, whom Aquinas sometimes explicitly quotes on this subject. So where are the divine missions at the transfiguration? Thomas sees it as a manifestation not only of the truth of the visible mission of the Son, so the Father's voice testifies to the true identity of Jesus, visibly man, but also he sees the transfiguration as a visible mission of the Holy Spirit to Christ as man. Now, of course, Aquinas insists that Christ as man always possessed the fullness of the Holy Spirit, invisibly. The visible sending of the Spirit to Christ occurred by means of signs visible to his disciples in order to manifest what Jesus 
already possessed, what was already there from his first, the first moment of his conception. As best as I have discovered, Aquinas is quite original in calling the transfiguration a visible mission of the Holy Spirit to Christ. Actually, this surprised me because uh, it's, at least to my knowledge, rather commonly understood now. Of course, many of Aquinas' predecessors, both Greek and Latin, speak of a visible mission of the Holy Spirit to Christ at the baptism, Christ's baptism in the Jordan, including Damascene, Augustine, and Athanasius. But they generally speak of only one visible mission of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. Aquinas identifies a second visible mission, and that's at the transfiguration. Now, this second mission, this second visible mission to Christ, plays an important role in Aquinas' overarching account of the dispensation of salvation. In fact, of what he calls the propagation of grace. That is how we all come to share the divine life. Because it means that there are now a total of four visible missions of the Holy Spirit with a very nice parallelism. Two to Christ and two to the apostles. So this is text A on your handout. A long text from Aquinas' John commentary, although he says the same exact thing in his sentences commentary at the beginning of his career and also in the Summa Theologiae. He writes, it should be noted that the Holy Spirit was sent upon Christ first in the appearance of a dove at his baptism and in the appearance of a cloud at the transfiguration. The reason for this is that the grace of Christ, which is given through the Holy Spirit, the focus is on grace, was to be derived to us through the propagation of grace in the sacraments. And thus he descended at his baptism in the appearance of a dove, which is a fruitful animal, life-giving, and through teaching, and thus he descended in a luminous cloud. Hence also, uh, Christ is there shown to be a teacher, so it says, listen to him. That's the Father's voice. But the Holy Spirit first descended on the apostles in Christ's breath, that's the evening of the resurrection, to designate the propagation of grace in the sacraments of which they were ministers. For this reason, he says, whose sins you will forgive will be forgiven. And go, therefore, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Second, the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles in tongues of fire to signify the propagation of grace through teaching. Thus, Acts says that when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately began to speak. So, for Aquinas, just as Christ as man received two visible missions of the Holy Spirit, one manifesting him at his baptism as endowed with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, in order to give grace, to give the Spirit and the Spirit's grace through the sacraments, and the other at his transfiguration shows Christ as man, as graced by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, for the sake of teaching. And this is why Aquinas thinks you get an additional statement in the Father's voice at the transfiguration, which isn't at the baptism, listen to him. So also, the apostles receive from Christ two visible missions of the Spirit for the sake of the spreading of the grace of salvation, which, which is from the Spirit. And 
the apostles' reception of the Spirit makes them qualified to be Christ's ministers in this twofold path of the propagation of grace, sacraments, and teaching. So Aquinas is, to my knowledge, quite original in reading the Transfiguration as Trinitarian, specifically as a visible manifestation of how the Holy Spirit empowers Christ as man or fills Christ as man with the Holy Spirit to teach with divine authority. In fact, with an authority that originates in the Father who sends him and which therefore grounds the church's mission to propagate grace through revelation, you might say. So from this overarching perspective of the transfiguration as a visible mission, let's now turn to the radiance of Christ at the transfiguration. So this is, in a way, the other axis, the the Christological axis. Here again, we will find Aquinas offering a reading that is derived from the fathers, to which he adds his own original insights. So if one were to offer a very broad brush summary of the Greek fathers on the transfiguration, a non-specialist's understanding perhaps, one might say they generally speak of it as a manifestation of the glory of Christ's divinity. Here, however, care is warranted, lest the shading given to the transfiguration by the influential 14th century Greek theologian Gregory Palamas color the reading of earlier Greek fathers. Palamas, of course, famously asserts as the traditional teaching of the fathers that at the transfiguration, the apostles beheld not some created glory of Christ, but the ineffable, eternal, and immaterial divine light of Christ's divinity, of the Godhead itself. And this is uh, found in text B on your handout, which I'm not going to read. Indeed, for Palamas, the divine light of the transfiguration becomes a key feature of the whole economy of salvation and also the heart of the mystical life, so it's extremely important for him. But a review of the exegesis of a range of prominent Greek fathers on the transfiguration shows that the Greek fathers themselves are generally less forceful and direct on this point than Palamas, and at least to my eyes, considerably more diverse in their understanding of the light of Tabor. So, for example, while St. Gregory of Nazianzus speaks rhetorically in praise of light the divinity that showed itself upon the mountain to the disciples a little too strong for their eyesight. That's a quote from Gregory. He also holds that Christ, quote, radiates in his form and thus revealing the Godhead. So one might wonder whether Gregory Gregory of Nazianzus principally intends to stress the revelation of Christ's divine identity by some brilliant light rather than claiming, as Palamas does, a stronger claim that the light itself is uncreated? It's a question. But there's another line of interpretation in the Greek fathers that conceives the transfiguration principally as a manifestation of the future glory of the resurrection. So John Chrysostom does not speak of a divine light at the transfiguration, a divine light, Rather, he emphasizes that the disciples saw an anticipation of the full radiance of the age to come. That's a quote from him. 
He goes on. The splendor here was a condescension rather than a true manifestation of what it will be like, end quote. And again, in homily 56 on Matthew, Chrysostom expressly compares Christ's transfigured glory with the future glory of Christ at the second coming that he thinks is revealed by Jesus at the transfiguration in order to strengthen the disciples for his coming passion. This is text C on your handout. Since Jesus has said a great deal about danger and death, wishing to give assurance even to their sense of sight, so the light is, is visible, and to reveal what that glory is in which he is going to come again, he reveals the kingdom to them visually. But what is revealed there is not yet even the full glory of his future coming. He goes on, to spare the disciples, he only revealed as much of his glory as they could bear. But he will later come in the very glory of the Father. And then he adds, after the quotation I've given you, even the saints will radiate with the brightness of this glory on the last day. Cyril of Alexandria later follows the same line as Chrysostom and is even more explicit. The light of the transfiguration is not the uncreated divinity, but rather a visible light showing forth the glorification of Christ's body. And this is in text D from Cyril, which I, I also will not read. I'll let you read that on your own. In Cyril, we find a notable emphasis on the humanity of Christ. A visible revelation is taking place through Christ's human form. St. Thomas Aquinas self-consciously stands in this same line of interpretation of the transfiguration. In fact, we know that Aquinas was familiar with the texts of Cyril and Chrysostom that I've just mentioned because he quotes them too, above all in his expressed treatment of the transfiguration in his mature works where he argues that on Mount Tabor, there is a miraculous revelation of Christ's glory as man. Now, at first glance, you might think that this aspect of Aquinas' account is operating principally on a Christological axis. But as we shall see in a moment, there's more to the story. Now, the reason for this manifestation of Christ's human splendor, Aquinas thinks, is to strengthen his disciples for his coming journey to the cross. And of course, this is the famous interpretation of St. Leo the Great, which actually we read in the Office of Readings for the Feast of the Transfiguration, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and Leo's influence may well be in the background for Aquinas, even if St. Thomas did not know Leo's Sermon 51 directly, as actually seems to be the case. As far as I am able to tell, he, he never quotes it. But this is also the same interpretation as John Chrysostom. And we can tell from Aquinas' quotations and other internal references when he's treating the transfiguration that Chrysostom's homily on the transfiguration is a prominent source for Aquinas' exegesis. So this is text E. In fact, when I went through, after going through this many times, I realized that it's almost as if, I mean, it, it makes me wonder if Aquinas didn't have the text of Chrysostom's homily in front of him when he first comments on the transfiguration in his uh, Matthew commentary, because it all, it's, it's like you're just reading point by point and they just match up, they just go right down the page. So text E, this is from the Summa, 
where Aquinas has, has reworked what he said in the Matthew commentary on the transfiguration. Our Lord, after foretelling his passion to his disciples, exhorted them to follow him to his passion. But if one is to go straight along the way, he must have some foreknowledge of the end, just as an archer will not shoot his arrows straight unless he first sees the target he is to aim at. And this is especially necessary when the way is hard and rough and the journey difficult, but delightful at the end. Now, through his passion, Christ came to arrive at glory, not only of his soul, which he had from the first moment of his conception, but also of his body. And then quotation from Luke 24. He also leads those who follow in the footsteps of his passion to this glory. That's literally the sequela Christi, in Acts, uh, referred to in Acts 14. And hence it was fitting that he should show his disciples the glory of his clarity. In Latin, the word is claritas, which you could more typically translate as splendor. And then he adds a parenthetical, which is what it means for him to be transfigured. So to be transfigured is to have this splendor to which he will configure those who belong to him. As Philippians 3.21 says, he will reform the body of our lowliness configured to the body of his glory. So there are three notable claims or elements in this text. First, St. Thomas is explicating the reason for this extraordinary manifestation of Christ's glory, and so his focus is on Christ's revelation and instruction to his disciples. They cannot be expected to go along the way of the cross unless they know the ultimate destination. Second, that future glory of Christ will be in both soul and body. That is, the whole humanity of Christ will be glorious. And third, Christ brings his followers to the same kind of glory that they see at the transfiguration. And he does this as they follow in his footsteps on the way to the passion. So the Christian life means being configured to Christ in his passion and thus sharing in his exaltation. There's a fourth principle that is hovering in the background of this text, and it doesn't quite appear. Christ's glorification at the resurrection is the efficient and exemplar cause of our future glorification. Now here, the influence of the Greek patristic tradition is very clear, especially of Athanasius as filtered through John Damascene for the principle that Christ's humanity operates as an instrument of his divinity. And as Father Licky said in a, in a presentation just before this one, uh, just a, a half hour ago, this is a major feature of Aquinas's Christology that he takes from the Greek fathers. Now, we've looked at reasons for Christ's claritas, his splendor at the transfiguration. But how? How is Christ's body glorified at this theophany? Aquinas explains in text F. The splendor, claritas, that Christ assumed in the transfiguration was the splendor of glory with respect to its essence, 
but not with respect to its mode of being. For the splendor of a glorified body is derived from the splendor of its soul, as Augustine says. And likewise, the splendor of the body of Christ in the transfiguration was derived from his divinity, as Damascene says, and from the glory of his soul. Okay, this is really interesting if you're paying attention to this text. Note the contrast. Aquinas cites Augustine for the principle that a glorified body is glorified because of the splendor of its soul. And then he cites John Damascene on a point that seems to run in a completely different direction. That the splendor was indeed of Christ's body, but it was derived from his divinity. And that's what Damascene says. Now this sounds closer to the view of Gregory of Nazianzus and seems to suggest the manifestation of Christ's divine nature through some kind of sensible light. Now, what is fascinating is that St. Thomas cites these two authorities in immediate succession, and not as contrary positions, but as if their harmony were obvious. And we find a clue to what he thinks about this in what he adds just after Damascene's quotation. The claritas was derived from his divinity, as Damascene says, and from the glory of his soul. After explaining that during Christ's earthly life, the glory of his soul did not normally overflow into his body, that, that follows just after the quote I've given you, due to a certain divine dispensation, Aquinas says, so that he would fulfill the mysteries of our redemption in a passable body, then St. Thomas returns to the synthesis of these two authorities, Augustine and Damascene. This is text G. Splendor was derived to the body of Christ in the transfiguration from the divinity and his soul, not in the mode of a quality imminent in and affecting his body in itself, but rather in the mode of a passing passion, like when the air is illuminated by the sun. So Aquinas' point is threefold here. First, the source of this bodily claritas, splendor, is his divinity and his soul. We'll go more into that in just a second. Secondly, it's really in his body and emanating from it. So it's a visible light. And third, it is not a stable dimension of his bodily existence during his earthly life but rather a miraculous and temporary one. It's a, it's a kind of miracle that's giving us a glimpse for a moment at some invisible reality. That's a clue to where Aquinas is going. In fact, for St. Thomas, it's very, uh, or on this, on this third point, earlier in the Summa, Aquinas had quoted Damascene for this principle. That's another interesting thing. In fact, for Aquinas, it's very important that Christ's Transfigured splendor is only momentary because, in general, Christ's flesh really does what is proper to flesh, and his divinity does what is proper to the divinity. And he thinks that this is a dimension of the truth of the unity of natures in Christ to manifest that true humanity and as a core Chalcedonian insight. The reason for it is soteriological, and Aquinas takes it from the church fathers. This is text H. 
The infirmity assumed by Christ did not impede the end of the incarnation, but promoted it to the greatest degree, maximally promoted it. And although these infirmities, and although through these infirmities his divinity was hidden, yet his humanity was manifested, which is the way of coming to the divinity. This is a capital principle in Aquinas. Indeed, the ancient fathers desired in Christ not some bodily strength, but rather spiritual strength through which he vanquished the devil and healed human infirmity. Now, let's go back to what Aquinas added to Damascene. The glory of the transfiguration is not only from his divinity. Aquinas writes, it's from the divinity and his soul. So why that addition, and his soul? Now, the reason is especially important for my theme. In a sense, here, we are at the crux of the two axes, Christological and Trinitarian. Or better, we discover that they are really different dimensions of the same one Trinitarian Christological mystery. So listen to what St. Thomas says in his commentary on Matthew on this point. This is text I. His shining face at the transfiguration reveals future glory where bodies will be bright and gleaming. And this claritas, this splendor, was not from the essence, but from the interior claritas of a soul filled with charity. Whence there was a certain refulgence in the body. So if we read this text in harmony with the text we just saw from the Summa Theologiae, which in fact was probably composed only a couple of years later, and the two are very closely parallel in many respects. Reading them together suggests that the claritas of Christ's body came from his divinity through the splendor of his soul. So you have divinity, soul, refulgence in his body. Now this makes perfect sense if you keep in mind Thomas's teaching on the distinction between the hypostatic union Jesus is God because the human nature is united to the divine nature in the person of the word. So the, the hypostatic union on one side and Christ's habitual grace on the other by which the humanity of Jesus is divinized by participation, according to Aquinas. So for Aquinas, the hypostatic union of itself does not directly qualify or modify Christ's humanity. It only does so indirectly, namely through Christ's habitual grace, which elevates and empowers Christ's humanity to do the things that he will do as savior of the world. And of course, this habitual grace is uniquely full and flows into his humanity as a necessary consequence of the hypostatic union, somewhat like a proper accident. But that grace, that habitual grace, is really and formally distinct from the hypostatic union. So they're necessarily connected, but they are in fact really distinct. Note that St. Thomas specifies that this claritas, I'm quoting again the same passage that we've already seen, this claritas was from the interior claritas of a soul filled with charity. Those are Thomas's words. Now charity, of course, 
for Aquinas, is the heart of habitual or sanctifying grace. Even more significantly, charity is the created effect according to which the Holy Spirit dwells in the soul in person, Aquinas teaches. So when Thomas says that Christ's radiant splendor at the transfiguration was from his divinity and his soul, and specifically from a soul filled with charity, he is in effect saying that the splendor radiating from Christ's body at the transfiguration was the effect of the Holy Spirit dwelling in Christ as man. And of course, this brings us right back to Aquinas' explanation of the transfiguration as a visible mission of the Holy Spirit to Christ. So you have, in fact, two aspects of that uh, presence of the Holy Spirit there. One is the visible sign of the cloud, and the other is the radiance of Christ's humanity. So now we can see the full extent to which the transfiguration is a mystery at once Trinitarian and Christological in Aquinas. But there's a final text that I want to conclude with. I can't fail to mention it because it connects this Trinitarian Christological revelation to our filial adoption and thus our return to the Trinity according to the pattern of the Trinitarian processions. This is a central feature of Aquinas' articulation of the dispensation of salvation as a whole. So in the concluding article in the Summa on the Transfiguration, Aquinas claims that the event on Mount Tabor manifests our future conformity in glory to the natural Son of God. And this is why the Father's voice is heard both at the baptism and at the transfiguration. The baptism begins our life of grace and the transfiguration foreshadows its consummation. So this is text J. At the transfiguration, this splendor foreshadows the splendor of our future glory. And so it was fitting in the transfiguration that the Father's testimony manifests the natural filiation of Christ, this is my beloved Son, because he alone, together with the Son and the Holy Spirit, is perfectly conscious of the Son's perfect generation. And he continues that in the transfiguration you see all three divine persons because in the resurrection the whole trinity will give to his elect the splendor of glory. So what we have here is a presentation of how we are saved by the Trinity and glorified, ultimately will be glorified by the Trinity, as we are conformed by the Holy Spirit to the natural sonship of Christ, which is being revealed through the Father's voice. So I hope uh, now we've gotten some glimpse of how Aquinas draws from and builds on the Greek fathers in a way that's both quite traditional, but also that produces a synthesis that is also very distinctive, and in fact, that gives us some glimpse of the great Trinitarian and Christological mystery of our salvation in Christ, and we hope, our future destiny, glory with him in heaven. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lovely, very enriching paper. Uh, we have time for a few questions. Uh, there should be some microphones going around. I'll have one here at the front. Thank you, Dr. Shabby Goldstein, and Holy Apostle. This is a 
thank you very much, uh, Father, for that uh, very, may I say, illuminating uh, presentation. Um, I, I want to uh, ask you concerning uh, what's on um, letter I, that quotation there. Um, what I find very interesting about this, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is what it says with respect to how um, Augustine, in certain ways, either mediates or complements Aquinas' reading of the Greek fathers um, because of what he says there about what Aquinas says about the soul filled with charity. This seems to me to be uh, the linchpin of Aquinas' soteriology, as you've uh, suggested here, that um, Aquinas is drawing upon um, Augustine's mystical body language, particularly with charity, the charity of the head, uh, being that which unites head and, 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 and members. Um, also, this seems to me to have to do with the fact that uh, as, August as Aquinas, Aquinas says elsewhere, that, uh, that Christ merited the redemption of his body. That seems to me to have to, to be connected with, uh, with Augustine's head and members' uh, soteriology. So I was wondering if there's anything that you could comment on. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, the other, uh, I mean, this is, I think, a very important um, thing for, for Aquinas. It, even uh, maybe to play off of uh, the conversation we were having last night uh, about uh, that uh, from Dr. Waldstein's excellent paper on uh, the divine indwelling and whether charity is, like the, the virtue of charity is enough to make the Holy Spirit really present. And I think maybe one way of starting to think about it, when you start seeing these, these texts of Aquinas and how Aquinas thinks about it, you know, charity is not a small thing. It's like, that's like a very, very, like powerful, powerful spiritual reality. So faith and charity are not just like some, oh yeah, you know, you know, sanctifying grace, he's got these virtues, move on to the next subject. This is the way that we are, that we are drawn back into God by a spiritual act. So it's not, it's not a physical thing that Aquinas wants to designate. It's the spiritual reality that, of course, is, is informing uh, the, the whole life of a person. And that's why he talks about charity as informing, informing. So it's, it's as important as a, you know, as a substantial form, you know, maybe on, an, on the natural level. It's, it's extremely powerful. So the grace, charity, and Christ's soul that contributed to the transfiguration, um, and as, as you said, it's a necessary accident of the grace of you, God. Um, how is that other than the, uh, the beatific vision in Christ, or is, is it approaching the same thing in an angle? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, and I mean, I think the answer is maybe not absolutely clear in the text of Aquinas, how to, how to connect these things, but it does seem uh, quite evident when you start going through the principles that he gives for Christ's beatific vision, that, okay, the, the foundation is always the hypostatic union, but the, the thing to keep in mind here is that it's not either or, like hypostatic union or habitual grace, but it's precise, these are, these are ordered realities. One is 
subordinated to the other and flowing from it. But they're, but they're distinct. They're concept, it's important to keep them conceptually distinct for, for some significant theological reasons. And so there is a, a kind of gratuitous gift to Christ's human mind, which Aquinas describes as this light. The, the light it's actually like the light of glory in his mind by which he sees the divinity as man, like in his human mind, uh, which, which we call the beatific vision. So that's why Aquinas is saying the, his soul was always glorious, but that's not disconnected from, but rather actually is an aspect of Christ's fullness of grace, habitual grace. Thank you very much. We'll have to conclude here with this part of the uh, question.